smoke rises from the Mountain of Doom. The hour grows late, and Gandalf the Grey rides to Isengard, seeking my counsel. Hello! Welcome to a very special episode of Watch Party Lord of the Rings on Prime, where we look at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation. I am joined today by your host, Michael Rowland, a.k.a. Gollum! Gollum! Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, I am joined by Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Knob. Knob the Hobbit. That's, that's who you are. Knob the Hobbit. All right. I'll take it. And we are joined by two very special guests this week. A drum roll, please. Brrr. Miss Aubrey Brunswick and Jesse Carpino, a.k.a. Arwen the Evenstar and Eowyn, Shield Maiden of Rohan, respectively. Welcome to the podcast, ladies. Wow. I'm super honored. But who's Arwen? What a delight. <laughs> which one's Arwen and which one's Eowyn? <laughs> I had a really hard time um, choosing between the two of you, but yes, Aubrey is Arwen and you are Eowyn, the Shield Maiden of Rohan. I mean, it makes sense. Well, these folks, these are my oldest and dearest friends in the world, and they both happen to be Lord of the Rings fans. So I thought it would be great to have them on the podcast. It's a podcast takeover, a female podcast takeover. Michael is the cock in the hen house, so to speak, (laughs) this week. So this is going to be a fun episode. We are continuing our discussion of the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films. Um, but first of all, we are all drinking red wine in honor of a scene that we're going to get to today, the scene between Saruman the White and Gandalf the Grey. So I'm, I'm curious to know uh, what blend everybody's drinking. Let's start with Miss Brunswick. Well, mine is just the finest box wine that my cousin bought. Um... Because I am at a family reunion right now, and I'm up late podcasting, which is exciting. That's like probably the coolest thing that's happening at the reunion, I've got to imagine. Yeah, definitely For is. Sure. You're like, <laughs> I got to go to my Lord of the Rings podcast. See you later. <laughs> Excuse me, I have to go. I got to go. I, I've reviewed both the extended version and the film, and also the, the book of Lord of the Rings. So uh, we'll get back to you later, family. Uh, excellent, excellent. And do they do they yes. understand your fandom, or do they think it's totally bizarre? They actually, uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, so everyone here is kind of a big nerd. Uh, uh, and actually, our Airbnb you can't see, but there's uh, a lot of Game of Thrones and Harry Potter nice. things in the room that I'm staying in, which is very appropriate setting. Yeah, yeah. So I'm feeling festive if you, you feel right at home <laughs> nice feeling fantasy festive well thanks for taking time out of your family reunion to uh to join us and mrs kustich or carpino as we'll yes. refer to you on this podcast what are you drinking okay i you're gonna be mad at me i'm actually drinking decaf chai because i just finished nursing my little baby but i'm hoping to maybe get some wine in a little bit, but this chai is delicious and I'm sorry I was going to get my wine ready and get my microphone ready, but my little baby, <laughs> she needed me. So if I do have to jump off on the podcast, that is why, because my little baby is crying. So I thought I'm pretty I'd sure, no worries. I'm pretty sure it's okay to feed babies red wine. I'm not a pediatrician. Sure, back in the olden days. Just but I will on. strongly make that recommendation to all of our listeners. <laughs> Babies love red wine. They love it. 
just she said, went to a deep, blissful sleep. <laughs> Mother, is this a cabinet? I actually have been all about the rosé the rose lately because I'm in North Carolina and it's very, very hot here. I think that counts because rosé is red. True, and yeah, it's, true. It's in the wine category. It's both, right? Yeah. It's red and white. Well, what are you drinking, Jen and Michael? All right. So I, I had to run to the store right before this and I just grabbed the thing that had the most Lord of the Rings looking art on the cover. Let's see. That's what I did too. So it's oh, got a beautiful. It's, it looks it's like called, the white tree. Yeah, it's gnarly, gnarly head. head. I was thinking more like uh, old man Willow, but uh, I could see that it is silver I and love it is that. it is red. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> we're drinking red wine, and I got one that just said it's red. It's authentic red. It's not like Merlot, <laughs> Cabernet, or anything. Just authentic red. It's a blend. I do like the artwork. I similarly got wine based on the artwork, and it is also a tree. Nice. <laughs> Nice. It is the Dreaming Tree. It's a Cabernet Sauvignon, California Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, but actually, this is kind of funny. Dave Matthews, did you guys know he does wine? Because Dave Matthews that made doesn't this surprise wine me with Sean all. McKenzie. It doesn't surprise me either, but I'd never tried it before. So I thought I'd try it. Um, and, it's, and it's quite good. Just getting into every industry these days. He seems Can't like the type of guy who put up. his put his hands in the dirt, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Just <laughs> seems yeah, like a sure. Dave Matthews type of activity. Yeah. Real earthy guy. Um, so, girls, before we jump into our discussion, I want to know. Uh, we'll start with uh, you, Jesse. How did you first discover Lord of the Rings, and did you come to the books or the movies first? All right. So, Jen, I don't even know if you know this, but. Um, you know, growing up, Jen's one of my nearest and dearest best friend. I remember her speaking Elvish when she was like 11, <laughs> sixth grade, being obsessed with Lord of the Rings. But I read The Hobbit when I was 11, but I actually did not read the books until, do you want to guess? Uh, I'm going to guess recently. Yeah, recently. I read the series last year in 2020, like right at the height of COVID, right when I found out I was pregnant. I'd always- a good time to do it. Honestly, I had always wanted to read them, but um, I do believe that like they came at the perfect time because what a year 2020 was and the books really were such a companion to me, especially with everything going on in the world. Like there was just so much with the protests, with the election, with COVID- being pregnant, I was away from family, and I really did find the books to be just so timely and comforting. And um, especially, like, I did feel like I was pretty isolated with my pregnancy, and it was pretty scary at times. So, I would, I would like send Aubrey messages like in tears because the books were just speaking to me so much. I was also pregnant, but um, um, Tolkien is. Um, was a Catholic and I'm also practicing Catholic. So I felt like I was reading it through almost like a spiritual lens um, and seeing a lot of spiritual symbolism. And I love that he was able to do it and not an over the top way. But um, I will say that I feel like the books found me at the perfect time. And these books really were just incredibly like uh, helpful for me in a really dark year for all of us really. Like I'm just, I mean, I know you guys have probably read them many times, but for me to first read them in 2020, it just felt so eerily timely. Yeah, that's I never knew that you came to them later, Mm -hmm. so much later. But yeah, I think a lot of the material thematically definitely speaks to the year we had. So (laughs) Exactly. Here's a question that I I feel prompted to ask. Now that you've read the books as an adult, 
it, does it change the way you not feel about the movies, but do you watch them in a different way now? I mean, knowing what was in the book that's not in the movie or the I differences. Mean, definitely. I'm actually rereading The Fellowship of the Ring right now, which is funny because I just read it like a year ago, but um, I'm just You're going like, to be the, one of those once a year <laughs> people. That's great. <laughs> I know. They left out so much, you know, and I get it. It's with the films. I mean, and we'll get more into this, I'm sure, but- I mean, even the part of the film we're going to talk about tonight, I just have so many thoughts about the book. And Jen, you said to come to this podcast kind of like with the lens of adaptation. I'm like, oh my goodness, like, I don't even, should I even say Tom Bombadil? Like, I feel like I have so many thoughts, but I'm sure we'll get to them. So yeah, I, I think it's interesting. The films, they're a work of art. I mean, they're they're beautiful, but I will say, I, I think I have a soft spot for the books now and I'm just so delighted as I read them and... um it's fun too. Like sometimes I'll read them to my little baby and I've let her see a little bit of the movie too. So I just think Tolkien really has, has a really special place in my heart now and I'm just falling more and more in love. So honored to be here. <laughs> I love that adults and children really connect to the material. Like it, regardless of the age group, people, it resonates with people, which is something I love about it. Um, and thanks for sharing that, Jesse. Aubrey, same question. I... Um, also sort of came to Tolkien during a more difficult time in life. When I was a kid, my dad was, it's really going to bring the mood down. Sorry, everybody. Uh, <laughs> my, my dad was sick with brain cancer and as a family, my mom and my dad and I would read the Hobbit aloud to each other. I think I was like 10 years old then. And ever since then, the, the Hobbit has been my comfort book. I read it just when I'm feeling lost or sad or like you need something comfortable. You know, there's a lot of change or something. Um, so that has always had a really special, really, really special place in my heart. And then um, I think then the movies came out shortly after that time wise. And so I... I believe that I saw the fellowship first and was obviously like <laughs> this is the pinnacle of my childhood experience because this <laughs> book that I love is this that's the next part of the book that I love and now it's a movie and everyone is hot um because <laughs> I was like 11 um Elijah and Wood. <laughs> Elijah Wood Viggo Mortensen Orlando Bloom Liv Tyler um anyway everyone's beautiful in the movies it was very exciting for our junior hire and um so then I I was prompted then to become a scholar and start reading the books of course and um I remember even then it was very exciting to sort of see the themes I was like a childhood environmentalist so I kind of loved a lot of the themes that Tolkien would wind in of like uh, nature versus machine and, and things like that in industry. Um, and so, you know, we got real deep into the books and then, and then the other two movies came out and likewise, Jesse was blown. I mean, there's the elephant in the room for this portion of the podcast is the missing Tom Bombadil. <laughs> we have covered that in past it's pods for sure. Just, yeah. It's still upsetting. It's, it's everybody's. It's everybody's beef. Anyway, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Anyway, um, <laughs> since then, uh, later a friend gifted me the Cimmerillion and I 
read it and loved it. It took me a long time, I will admit. Um, and you two, when I listen to you discuss it, remember a lot more than I do <laughs> from when I did my reading. Um, well, we we definitely don't remember it. I mean, you know, we have to take heavy notes and we're rereading oh, yeah. it right beforehand. That's been no, for sure. <laughs> the, the best part of this podcast is is it gives us sort re-reading. of like a structured way to, to reread it. That's Absolutely. true. You have you you probably. I don't know. I just like to believe that you read it once and you know everything now. You just have steel trap minds for Tolkien, <laughs> for Tolkien lore. No, no. Um, yeah, actually, I, I actually have never read it. It's just inside me. That's where it comes from. <laughs> He's got like a eye of Sauron on his forehead and it's read every Tolkien piece of paper. Um, Aubrey, similarly... I find The Hobbit to be like such a grounding book and I it's always been a childhood favorite and a favorite in adulthood also. And I don't think I knew that you were a Lord of the Rings fan until much later. And then we co- we connected on that, I want to say in high school. Um, yes. And then we, and then subsequently we took a trip to Iceland together yes. And so cool. even though it wasn't filmed in Iceland, we did, in fact, reenact scenes from Lord of the Rings in Iceland. Oh, boy. The crazy tourists that we Some were. beautiful reenactments. Jennifer as Gollum, myself as Legolas. <laughs> I had blonde hair at the time. <laughs> I think the reason that I loved Iceland so much, though, is because there's so much Nordic and Icelandic influence in a lot of Tolkien's writings. And there's a yeah. lot of mythical elements in Icelandic culture. And even the Huda folk, the hidden, the hidden folk, the elves fascinate right. me in Icelandic culture. I don't know if we've ever discussed that on this pod, but I'd love to sometime. Um, and I just felt like Tol- it was a place that was um, Tolkien would have really loved and appreciated. And a lot of the myth uh, mythos around and legendarium that they have, um, you find a lot of that creeping into Tolkien's works yes. also. So much mythology inspired and then landscape wise you're talking about a place that i i don't know very very many geology terms or geography terms so you can never excuse me but new zealand and iceland are, are extremely similar even though they're on opposite sides of the globe mm-hmm. um we actually met some new zealanders and we were like why why did you come here it's <laughs> <laughs> just like being at home anyway we i digress now, Amy and I went yeah. to Iceland for um, our baby moon before we had um, Ellie, and we went there for like our last, you know, last vacation before we never get to take a vacation ever again. And um, it was like an amazing, it was an amazing place, the perfect place, and it was just so beautiful. And we just took a, rented a car and just drove around. And you know, if you have a handful of days, you can just drive all the way around the island. And there's a road that goes all the way around, and there's just waterfalls, infinite waterfalls along the way. If it's like within eyeshot of the road, you can like get out and walk up to them, and it's a, a, an unbelievable place. The Ring Road, ding, ding yeah, ding. oh yeah, the Ring oh. Road, first full circle, <laughs> <laughs> the first Sorry. full circle of the podcast. Well, Ring Road, full circle. So I, I have to know. The three of you, childhood friends, childhood Lord of the Rings friends. I mean, did you have any traditions watching the films? I mean, I, I, I getting you all together. I'm really excited to see childhood versions of yourselves emerge. I know. Wait for the accents, Michael. Just wait till the accents start coming out. Oh, they'll start flowing. 
Um, I definitely had some watching parties in middle school after the films were released. We'd make Lembus bread. <laughs> I yes. Watch the films. Jen, I feel like everything was always at your house. Yeah, we we definitely watched our fair share of the movies. We and made one. I do remember making the Lembus bread. I it don't remember that. It was not very good. It was not good. <laughs> it was not very good. We never I, got it quite right. I blocked it out. No, I don't remember that, but that's, yeah, Lembus. Now I'm hungry. Yeah, but the three, I mean, the three of us, I think, I this is a question that I meant to ask you guys too, is I think part of the reason that I feel like this material always resonated with me so much is because we grew up in this very small mountain town, a rural mountain town in Arizona. And it always felt so much like Hobbiton to me. Yes. And I always felt like I could identify with so much of what the Hobbits experience, like going out into the wide world and realizing that it is simultaneously not as scary as you've been told, but also like you are, you are able to overcome much more than you had initially thought. I love that. that. Something when, like that, I think, yeah. spoke to me. And I think, Jen, like, as I was, as I read the books and as I'm rereading The Hobbit and rereading The Fellowship, I, I, like, picture parts of Payson and, Air, like, northern Arizona. Like, there's just some wooded areas. And, I mean, Aubrey, you grew up in Pine, which is very much, like, just, like, feels very Hobbitish. And I also think in high school, we were drama nerds, the three of us. Like, we were all in theater together. And I think... Um, there was just a sense of, I don't know, there was a lot of playfulness and joy and we would celebrate and eat together. And I just feel like we took on a lot of hobbit traits as young children and, and teenagers. I really identify with hobbits like in many ways. <laughs> the more I read it, I'm like, yes. Oh, yes. I need to revive myself with a cup of tea. <laughs> like I need second breakfast like right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I might be getting ahead of myself a little bit, but the scene where we're supposed to end our segment, I used to reenact with my horse, which is <laughs> uh, the scene where Arwen is yes. running from the Nazgul. And I would try to get my horse to run as fast as I could. And I would whisper fake Elvish in her ear. I, I love that. I'm not going to do it now because <laughs> I it wish would that just be like, okay. it was, uh, <laughs> I'll, maybe I'll do it for you later. If I finish this <laughs> glass of wine. Um, but that was like, it, it did feel like because we were in a rural mountainous setting, it felt really connected to sort of the imagery we would see or imagine. And it was so easy to pretend. I was a big pretender as a kid and obviously then drama kid. So it all makes sense. You were you were LARPing. You didn't know it, but you were LARPing. Solo LARPing, actually, is what I like to call it. Okay. <laughs> I... What is LARPing? I don't know what LARPing is, <laughs> oh you guys. My is it role play? Just role yeah. play? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Live action role play, Jennifer. Live action yeah. role play. I'm Actually, sorry. There we are had levels a good friend. to this, my nerd. There's levels. <clears throat> <laughs> I have played my fair share of Dungeons and Dragons, I will admit. Um, oh, <laughs> Michael, maybe you can help my group out. We're not very good. Um, <laughs> oh, neither am I, no so I will just enhance the not very goodness okay, of it. Perfect. My problem is the math, but we did have a friend in high school that was Ugh, a true LARPer. Math. Yeah, there's math involved. But we had a friend, remember, we had a friend in high school that was in drama and he had a full set of armor and he would yes. go LARPing. And that's 
that's what it is. Okay, I'm thinking of like six different people, but like could be any number of people. You know those drama nerds. No, but I I wouldn't trade that time for anything. I feel like Lord of the Rings and three girls who love theater and yes, LARPing. I didn't I didn't know that term either, Jen. But now that I know it, I'm like, yeah, we definitely we had our fair share of imaginative fun together. That's for sure. And that's putting it mildly. Well, (laughs) I think we should dive on in because we have so much ground to cover. We're going, we are again, once again, we're breaking down Peter Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring, my favorite of the three films. And Um, we're starting at uh, timestamp 46 minutes and 42 seconds, which is about half as far as we thought we'd be at this point. But I am perfectly happy with the pace that we have chosen. (laughs) We're taking our time because this, I feel like this movie is a work of art and we're going to spend as much time as we darn well please. So we hope you're all still along for the journey and re-enjoying these films. So the last time we saw Frodo and Sam leaving the Shire on their way to Bree, Sam was feeling sad at the passing of the elves. And when we left Gandalf, he told Frodo he was going to visit Saruman, the head of his order, because he will know what to do. So that's where we're going to pick up. And is anybody going to do a summary of the portion we're doing today? Neither of you volunteered for the one breath summary. No, I disagree. I volunteered Jesse for the one breath summary. (laughs) You did volunteer Jesse. Would either of you like to take a stab at the one breath summary? She can talk really fast. I can talk really fast. Just give it your best shot. It's okay. Quick question. Um, So you want me, I just, I just don't have an example. You want me to do a one breath summary of this specific scene of. Summarize the plot of everything we're going to cover today. So from, from Gandalf's meeting with Saruman (laughs) through the hobbits meeting Aragorn and getting taken through the Midgewater marshes. Oh my goodness. Let me, okay. One breath. I feel like I'm really focused on one scene right now. Gandalf shows up in Saruman and all of a sudden Saruman is like making him go around like an exorcist and it's really scary. And then all of a sudden the hobbits, they meet Strider and I don't know why this, I'm running out of breath. The the hobbits are, am I cheating? I'm cheating. Can I do it? You're breathing. You're definitely. (laughs) It's okay. All I asked for was an attempt. All I asked for was an attempt. But I was, thank you. Oh my god! But I'm excited well, because I have more in my mind. But. Yes. Well, you did get to the scene. You at least covered. You at least covered the first scene. So Michael was gonna walk us through the scene, and then we'll break it down. Okay. So in this scene, and I will use more than one breath. Uh, Gandalf rides to Isengard to seek the counsel of Saruman the White. Gandalf fills him in on the Ring's whereabouts. All these long years, it was in the Shire. Under my very nose. Saruman tells Gandalf that Sauron is regaining his strength, growing his forces, and reveals that he has been using the Palantir to peer into the future. The Palantir is a dangerous tool, Saruman. Gandalf slowly begins to realize that Saruman has turned. He tells Gandalf that the Nazgul have nearly reached the Shire and will kill Frodo. They've reached the Shire. They will find the ring. And kill the one who carries it. But when Gandalf tries to leave to help them, Saruman bolts the doors. Gandalf realizes his friend has fully gone to the dark side. And Saruman beseeches Gandalf to join with Sauron. We must join with him, Gandalf. We must join with Sauron. A wizard duel ensues that is totally awesome and not in any way hilarious or ridiculous. 
and Gandalf <laughs> is defeated and spirals up to the tower and out of sight. So a lot to unpack in the scene. And Jesse, you're chomping at the bit, so. Well, I just, I, you know, as rewatching the film and I don't remember it being so creepy, but like that part where Gandalf is spinning around, it just reminded me of the exorcist. And I was, I just felt really freaked out by it. Like rewatching it, I was like, I don't know why this freaks me out. But you were saying, Michael, you were like, it's not at all ridiculous. So I want to know your thoughts. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I thought maybe I, that was sarcasm. I, no, it is definitely, <laughs> it is definitely sarcasm because that is the one scene in this movie that I just like the whole wizard duel. I mean, if you get, uh, yeah. maybe we can save that, but the wizard duel is just the worst, the worst choice in this whole movie because you never Star see. Wars vibe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so many problems with it. First of all, Wizards have like telekinesis. They have force powers like it's Star Wars. And if so, why hasn't Gandalf been throwing people around with his force powers the entire movie? Like one of the things that I love about the books is that you don't really know. Like magic is not explained in a concrete way in the same way it is in like Harry Potter or other, other things where it's like the rules of magic aren't explained. And so it's like, what are wizards powers? You don't like really know. And it's not at all important. They have like a deeper connection to the earth and to, Mm -hmm. you know, the Mm -hmm. cosmological order and to Eru, you know, who doesn't make an appearance in Lord of the Rings, but you know, through the Silmarillion and to see it made explicit. And for Peter Jackson to show what their powers are, to have them like two old men dueling, it just, it looks ridiculous. It doesn't, it just doesn't work yeah. at all for me. It creeped me out. Like I just remember being like, "This is creepy," <laughs> which is right. not the vibe I get when I read Lord of the Rings. Like I don't get a creepy vibe. It's there's definitely like scary moments, and I love that and eerie. But like when Gandalf is spinning around, I'm like, "What is that?" <laughs> so the first half of this really works for me. The first when mm-hmm. when Gandalf first arrives and he's talking to Saruman and. And, eat, and through the through the garden, and then they go inside of the tower, and they're speaking, and it slowly dawns on Gandalf that his friend has turned. All of that, I think, is very well done. Agreed. But I have to agree that the duel is not really effective, but it's really funny to hear Peter Jackson talking about it, because when he talks about it, he says, you know, I don't like magic on screen. I don't like, you know things shooting out of people's fingers and depicting magic. So I actually thought hand-to-hand combat would be somewhat comical and more effective. He, he says that. He, he thought it'd be that comical? It would have been comical. Yes, which is a really funny and interesting choice. Oh, wow. And I think the scenes that we're going to talk about, what I'm going to keep circling back to is that we have to remember Peter Jackson was a horror film maker, mm-hmm. first and foremost. And uh. a lot of horror films are quite campy and are quite silly at times. And he's not afraid of doing that. And so maybe that was just his also, instinct to go there. I think that was his instinct to go there. And um, yeah, this scene as a child, I think, was frightening. And as an adult, I, I agree that it's quite silly. Um, actually, Gandalf is in a cradle when he's spinning and they're spinning him. It is him. And he's, he was like injured, not injured from it, but they had to have a chiropractor standing on set to like help him afterwards. And his legs are tied with invisible uh, like strings to, to get him in that crazy position that he's in. Wow. So although they use stunt doubles for the vast majority of this scene, they did, um, Christopher Lee and, um, Ian McKellen. 
Ian McKellen, thank you, did do a fair bit of it themselves. Uh, so, and that's impressive because they're older. So, but yeah. mostly, I mean, it was mostly stunt doubles, and they did some things on their own. No, I I agree, Jen. The beginning was well done. I think well acted, and like it, it is. It's like if I had not read, you know, if somebody had watched this and doesn't know, like you think, oh, he's going to meet his friend, and then it turns. Like they do that. <laughs> I think they do it well, but. Yeah, they yeah. start dueling and it's like, I don't know, it's different. <laughs> well, this whole, this entire scene is is really made up because mm-hmm. when you read it in the book, this is all something that Gandalf recounts at mm-hmm. the Council of Elrond. So it was much more open to interpretation, I think, than so much of the other scenes. And, you know, also it's, shot really differently than the rest of the films are as a like as a photographer it a lot of the other films and your hero shots are shot in a much more traditional manner and in this scene you get I I mean it makes sense to me what you were saying Jen about the horror movies because we're shooting from really low angles that are uh sort of distorted and you're seeing the wizard's faces and it's very dark and um, sort of some untraditional framing that happens. It's very unsettling. And I do think it's like, of all the fight scenes that happen, it is both like more silly and more brutal, it, like physically more brutal right. than a lot of the other fight scenes that we get throughout the series. Maybe the whole thing, right? And just to be clear, there's no fight scene in the book. Like there's no, no inclination no, yeah. no to do battle. Duel. There's no wizard duel. It's made at all. up. It's made up. Yeah. I mean, in the book, literally all that they say is that uh, that Saruman took Gandalf up to the to the roof, and there's no indication that there was a battle or that Gandalf even resisted. It's not even clear that Saruman was the one who did it. He probably had some of his his orcs take him up. Um, but there's that was totally something that was made up by Peter Jackson, which I guess I'm like okay with there being some sort in depicting some sort of struggle, I guess. But I would generally much prefer this is something that I think should be off scene, you know, leave it to the imagination. Tolkien leaves a lot to the imagination, and I think Peter Jackson should have done that as well. Because sometimes when you try and shoot something too straight on and de- depict it in its fullness and fill in the blanks, you actually um, diminish its impact and diminish your experience of it because you're not allowed to fill in the blanks with your own imagination and the true mythical quality evaporates yeah. because you now, Oh, now I'm seeing exactly what they're doing. Whereas before I could imagine it and it would be much greater in my mind, you know, I think you're exactly right. And I think they could have cut it right after he shuts the doors on Gandalf and that it's, that it's apparent that Gandalf is trapped. He's not allowed to leave, which furthers the plot and establishes, you know, just how powerful Sauron has become and that he is, you know, building an army as, as Sauron talks about. I think you can, can have all of that without having the cheesy wizard duel. So I wish they would have cut it right when he shuts the doors and traps Gandalf so that it's apparent that Gandalf is in prison against his will, but we right. but we don't have time wasted on something that's totally fabricated. So yeah, the first half is great. The second half, we, we right. have consensus. I kind of want to rewind a little bit because, um, and, and Aubrey, I have a question for you because you're, you know, an artist, you're a, uh, we should, we should talk about this at some point that you did our logo, amazing logo. Um, yes, our logo. I want to give you a chance logo. to talk about it fully. But so as Gandalf's writing up, we see Orthanc for the first time and Saruman's coming down the stairs. And, you know, side note, 
terrible use of green screen. It's really obvious that it's green screen. Didn't age too well in my mind. Like I can tell <laughs> it's green screen in the background. But setting that aside, um, what did you think of the design of Orthanc and the, the choices that they made? I mean, I my memory of it as a child, I remember not knowing what was going to happen. And, and you get this outside view of what is seemingly kind of a beautiful tower, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it does have some of these very sharp angles at the top that are maybe a little bit menacing. It does kind of look like Dracula's tower, you know, black, lots of angles. and Yeah, like the top, the top has a lot of pointy things, which is mm-hmm. never good in architecture for, <laughs> for a good guy. That's always sharp a bad edges. guy sign. Right. Sharp, bad sharp stuff on the top is always a bad guy house. Anyway, but it, it doesn't seem, it's, it sort of toes the line, I think, on the outside when you first see it. And it's surrounded by all these beautiful green trees and you see Gandalf riding his grand horse up and you're, mm-hmm. you don't know. Um, and then I think obviously the inside, we get inside and it's, all it's almost like 1980s um labyrinth vibes or something there's these like dark shapes and lots of pointy rounded things and i don't know it reminds me of some of those like 80s puppet movies a little bit in in a fun way (laughs) i think the fact that it's a model blows my mind like it's one of the more intricate models uh, it's a big model but it's a model yeah it is a model, yeah, and I think the Weta workshop was just incredible for that reason. But it is, am I correct in saying it's one of the first models we see? I think we see Gondor mm-hmm. before that, but I think it's uh, all the work that they did in the camera work. To me, it looks so realistic. Mm-hmm. Like I would not know that that was a model. Yeah, it oh, looks absolutely. incredible. So I, I looked up um, because the the design of the exterior of Orthanc is based on a drawing by Alan Lee. And actually the drawing that he had done was only of like the bottom base of Orthanc. And so it's must've been one of the great thrills for Peter Jackson in, in directing this movie. So he got to take Alan Lee and John Howe and say, what's the rest of it look like? You know, finish this drawing. Let me see. And then have Alan, Alan Lee who made this great base make the rest of it. And so it's based on Alan Lee's drawing, but I looked up Tolkien's original sketches because he was a bit of a sketch artist and there's tons of sketches out there um, of, you know, things from the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. And his depiction of Orthanc is extremely different. Um, it almost looks like a wedding cake. Um, it's like f- it's like four circular uh, bases like on top of each other. Uh, so it's like a tiered wedding cake almost. And um, it doesn't have any of the sharp angles or anything. It has sharp angles at the very, very top. But, you know, up and down the tower, it looks very, very different. And I actually think that I like Alan Lee's depiction better just visually it, it tells more of a story i mean to me this looks like an evil guy's lair outside on the outside and then certainly on the inside like one of the notes that i made when i was watching this i was like gandalf how could you not realize saruman's a bad guy like look at his decor it's all black it's, <laughs> it's dusty like no lights coming through the windows it's this is a, this is a bad guy's house to me it's very gothic and you see like gothic themes throughout this whole sequence we're talking about everything from the music it's um it's almost choral and gothic sounding to a lot of the architecture um and we'll get to the scene at the prancing pony which to me has a lot of mm-hmm. another gothic elements but i think to us that reads as um the medieval gothic a lot of times to us trans our modern sensibilities translates really well like oh this is bad this is dark right. and <laughs> evil and foreign 
right, right. A dark period of history. If that well, and any of your any of your haunted house is going to be in a gothic style. You know, mm-hmm. any of those old haunted spooky things. Yeah, I feel like at any minute in the scenes between Gandalf and Saruman, like a skeleton was going to fall out of the ceiling and like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, it's creepy. And how creeped out were we by the, I love, here's one thing I love about the scene that I didn't mention, the flash of the eye when he covers the Palantir. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I, I jumped the first time I saw it. Yeah. You know, I remember jumping in the theater like, whoa, it was so effective. Yeah. Oh yeah, you know, and they—I know—they really struggle to make the eye seem menacing and like a real presence because it is a disembodied eye. How do we make this a villain? Yeah. And so they were very scary. thoughtful about how that was depicted. Yeah, and I think using techniques like that, just the flash and the mm-hmm. surprise, is is great. Yeah, I think it's great in the Fellowship. We'll talk about this later when we get to the Two Towers and the Return of the King. I hate it as an actual. <laughs> disembodied eye at the top of Baradur as if Sauron is like living at the top as an eye because he's not actually a disembodied eye. Like in the books, he has a physical form. Uh, We know that because uh, Gollum is tortured and he describes the four hands on Sauron, the four fingers on Sauron's hand. So we know he has a body now. Um, The whole like he can't take shape and he's just an eye at the top of the tower. That was kind of a overly literal translation, translation of certain metaphorical passages um by peter jackson and i <laughs> it kind of drives me nuts in return of the king but i love it here because it's like that's his spirit you know speaking uh, communicating with the spirit of our characters in in the fellowship it's never the physical disembodied eye it's the spirit of sauron communicating and appearing to people as this eye and i love the use of that in the fellowship and it's, yeah. it's so spooky that it's um triggered by sort of by touch, right? It, mm-hmm. it, it, the moment that it happens is when he places his hand over it to cover it back up and it's like, touched a spider or something. <laughs> so <laughs> scary. And and I think yes. they do a good job like showing inside of Saruman's tower. Like, I mean, it feels so opposite of what Tolkien like truly values in these books. I think, Michael and Jen, you've talked about this in the podcast about Tolkien being such a strong advocate for preserving nature and the natural and like you go in this tower and it just feels like there's like nothing is alive in there it's dark and um and you know they're gonna start ripping up the trees soon and like i just think they do a good job like there's no plants in there there's no life like it feels very grim very grim Yes, it's it's deeply apparent that uh, Saruman, who was once wise and great, um, as is mentioned in the books, has has gone to the dark side, as you said before, Michael. Um, so, so I think, go ahead. Well, so one piece of trivia before we move on, um, and I didn't realize this until I was watching the scene and then I started looking it up, but I learned from the scene where Gandalf and Saruman are walking outside of Orthanc and talking because you can see the top of Gandalf's staff, that Gandalf stores his pipe in the top of his staff. His pipe is in the top of his staff. You can see it. (laughs) And in every scene throughout the movie, if you look at his staff, it's got his pipe inside of it, which I think is like such a cool little detail. I love that. So brilliant. Wizards are all about practicality, so it totally makes sense to me. (laughs) Trendy and practical. (laughs) Trendy and practical. But- we definitely can't move on okay. before we explain why we're drinking red wine because this is a scene where it comes yes. up. Yeah, so, exactly. 
I think this is hilarious. Um, they're walking together outside and they're talking and then Peter Jackson uses an old, like a pretty conventional cinematic trick to add motion, like visual action to what is basically just dialogue and people talking. They're having a conversation in one setting and then it cuts to another setting, but it's the same conversation as if like they just teleported there in the middle of the conversation. You you see that all the time in movies for no other reason than just like have something interestingly (laughs) visual happen. And so time has passed. Yeah. (laughs) And and when it cuts to them inside of Orthanc, they're drinking, they have little crystal goblets of red wine. Yeah. And I just like imagining like they're out walking outside and I just like imagining the scene in between where Saruman's like, hey, let's let's go inside, get a drink. Uh, and I like imagining Gandalf more and more uncomfortable. Like maybe it was his suggestion. He was like, do you have any? <laughs> yeah, Saruman, yeah. sure. Do you have any red wine or anything? Do you have that boxed wine that your cousin? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Gandalf was requesting like, do you have a, do you have a beer? No, I have red wine. How about like a, a whiskey or anything? No, only red wine here. Saruman just seems like a red wine guy to me. Yeah. Oh, but sure. do you think he like, chooses the wine bottle also based on the tree on the label or (laughs) (laughs) he chooses it based on the machine on the label no he he's brilliant so he has deep knowledge of which blends are the best (laughs) he knows more than we do oh does anybody else notice christopher lee first of all what a guy what a brilliant guy but he does not blink in this scene oh, that's ever. so creepy. I tried to find him, catch him blinking, oh and I was wondering if they filmed it that, you know, I'm sure they purposefully did this, but I wonder if it took how many takes it took. If they were like, you blinked, like, do it again, or if he just <laughs> did that. Or I if think he he's just developed naturally- that over the years playing, being an actor in basically every horror movie ever filmed. I mean, he's been Dracula, well, he's been uh, the mummy, he's been everything. It's effective because it is oh, real yeah. creepy that he doesn't blink, but he also has such focus and intensity. Yeah. The acting, you know, for the silly duel scene, the acting is really good. I mean, in this scene, I think that I love watching them both on screen. Like, like you're just drawn to, ew, it's so creepy. I didn't notice he didn't blink, Jen. I'm going to watch that now. Ugh. Yeah, rewatch it. There's one scene that just, uh, where it, uh, when he closes the door on Gandalf and then, you know, the, the camera's cutting between Gandalf's face and Saruman's face, kind of back and forth. And there's one shot of Saruman's face where he just has this like, <laughs> you know, like overly evil, like, you know, 1950s horror movie look on his face. And it just cracks me up every time. But it's perfect. I don't I don't dislike it. I'm not giving him a hard time. I just think it's it like harkens back to an older era of uh, horror oh, movie acting. Oh, for sure. And he was a serious Tolkien lover. So I'm so thrilled he ended up in this movie. Um but I think we're going to move on to one of my favorite sequences in the films. So we're going to move on to a shortcut to mushrooms. The scene after Saruman beats Gandalf in the wizard duel, we cut to Frodo and Sam. They're walking in a cornfield. So after thinking he lost Frodo, Sam professes his unwavering commitment for the first time with the famous, don't you leave him, leave him Samwise Gamgee, and I don't mean to. Don't you lose him, Samwise Gamgee. I don't mean to. Sam, we're still in the Shire. What could possibly happen? Mary and Pippin suddenly burst from the corn stalks, landing on Frodo and Sam. They are being chased by Farmer Maggot and his hounds for stealing his crops. They tumble off a ledge, tragically breaking one carrot, but are quickly consoled by a discovery of mushrooms on the path. That was just a detour. A shortcut. A shortcut to what? The mushrooms! 
While bagging their find, Frodo begins to feel uneasy. He notices some strange distortions in his surroundings and yells for the hobbits to get off the road. The hobbits quickly dart under a hill beneath a tree, narrowly avoiding the rider cloaked in all black who appears above them. Black rider dismounts its terrifying horse and begins to sniff out the hobbits, awakening all manner of creepy crawly creatures. Frodo nearly puts on the ring, but is aided by Sam. The hobbits distract the rider and flee. In the dead of night, still being pursued, Frodo tells Mary that they must leave to the Shire and get to Bree. Mary knows just the place. Huckleberry Ferry. Follow me. So, this scene, first of all, um, beautiful shots of Mary, or sorry, Frodo and Sam walking through New Zealand. And I love this. It intro- it's technically not our introduction to Mary and Pippin, but it's the first time we really get to know them. I think it's so great, even though this is a much, much, much longer sequence in the book and they've cut out a lot. I love that this the pacing is so great and it adds a little bit of comic relief here with falling off the mountain and breaking the carrot and all of that. Um, And I really love the use of the distorted reality, very um, Alfred Hitchcock tool that he uses when the black rider is coming towards them. Like where part of the frame is zooming in and part of it's zooming out and you feel disoriented like you want to throw up. Yes, exactly. That is a classic horror film trope. Uh, yeah. Classic Hitchcock. and that's. I think it's like an effective visual way of depicting what is otherwise in the book totally an internal emotion, right? I mean, this is the challenge. In, in books, you can you can narrate someone's internal thoughts and their feelings and, you know, Tolkien talks about the a feeling of a shadow on your heart. It's like, well, how do you visually depict that? Mm, and mm-hmm. I think this was a, a, a clever and effective way of doing it. He uses it a few times throughout the trilogy, but this is the first time I think we see it. And I think it's, it's very, very effective. I think it's, it's, it's a cinematic way of representing the somatic response when you, when you're in fight or flight and you get tunnel vision, right? When your body says, I need to focus on an escape route now. Um, totally sides of your vision blur and you hone in on in what's in front of you I, I think that that's like super super effective way to represent that and it's also our first close-up real close-up of the black riders of the ring wraiths who just mm-hmm. embody evil i think they were so well done they are terrifying and Scariest again thing. very gothic and very scary and i when the when the ring wraith dismounts and is like sniffing them out chills down the spine and also the the bugs crawling out was really so good such a good touch and i guess they actually like auditioned bugs quote unquote (laughs) and had a lot of like crazy things happen while they were seeing these bugs and yeah i just thought that was funny they they used real real bugs to some degree i feel bad for the actors i didn't realize they were real bugs that that's horrible yeah. Can we can we do that again? Centipede, you were going a little too slow there. Could you crawl on Mary's face, please? But also, this is a great Elijah Wood moment when he's resisting, you know, the temptation of the ring and is aided by Sam, but just depicting that, depicting the temptation mm-hmm. coming over his face. Oh, yeah. He looks like, I mean, he looks ill, you know. He looks very, oh, yeah. very, very well acted. Yeah, I agree. The The... Ring wraiths, like the close up of them, like 
just the little hand, like metal fingers. Oh, it's so creepy. Um, and I don't know, maybe you've mentioned this before. I know you've talked about diving into different fantasy worlds, but can we talk about how they remind us a little bit of Dementors? Like I know they're different, but sometimes I think definitely like yeah. just that sense of like, I know that JK Rowling said that when she describes Dementors, she was inspired because she had depression mm-hmm. and that's just, like, this is embodiment of depression. Well, when I think of, you know, I think of the, the Black Riders, the Ring Wraiths, I think, oh man, they're just sucking all the joy out of this moment. But also it's creepy to think that they were once human, whereas Dementors, they were not human. So there's a little difference there. I, I mean, I, right. I, 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 especially after reading, rereading the books, I'm like, okay, these, these were nine men that like, yeah. think of their, think of their, you know, their fate. That's got to be the worst. And the fact that Frodo, I mean, not to fast forward too much, but that Frodo could have that fate when he gets stabbed, you know? Yeah. Oh, I yeah, hate that's that That's so thought. important. Yeah. yeah. And that's something I hadn't really considered. I, obviously, they make explicit in the Lord of the Rings, like Aragorn talks about it, that Frodo would become a rave. And so you think about it from Frodo's perspective. But until doing this podcast, I hadn't really read it from the perspective of, boy, the Nazgul actually they were men once and they experienced something there and they are experiencing something horrible and their life is a is a internal torment to them right now um and so i'd never view this in any way being viewing them as pitiable or you know and and they're of course evil villains but um tolkien always does this there's people like to say that tolkien is just like good guys and bad guys but um there are always nuances there to, to look for and i think the nazgul are a great example of that they are the worst bad guys in the entire series um, next to Sauron. And nonetheless, we pity them or should pity them because they were once men. I I love um, that. I even think I have a quote here from the book when Gandalf is speaking about Gollum, like speaking about pitying, he says, I think it's a sad story, said the wizard, and it might have happened to others, even to some hobbits that I have known. And same, like it's it humanizes, yeah, Tolkien humanizes, yes, these ring wraiths, they are villains, but it is like when I think now, like they, they were men that fell to the rings, you know, the, the power and the greed overcame them. And now their fate is just torment. Right. Oh my gosh. And one of my favorite shots, probably my absolute favorite shot in the whole movie comes in this scene where you have the four hobbits hiding underneath the big tree root and you have the Nazgul on his horse you know, riding up That's just a, above them. Yes. That single image is so beautiful. It's haunting. It is beautiful. And I think I love that we get the four hobbits. It, it establishes them finally as as this um, this tight knit foursome that they are. Even though even though the fellowship is broadened, they are the the hobbits that set out, you know, right. from their little town. And um and I love that it starts out. This scene starts out so lighthearted, you know, Merry yeah. and Pippin up to their up to their tricks, and then it ends on such a somber note, the polar opposite of how it starts. Can we talk about that? About the beginning when they're in Farmer Maggot's, like when they're in his field, because I I know yeah. there had to be cuts made, but I really like I love Farmer Maggot in the book. Like I think it's just such a sweet moment when. You know, he Frodo, 
in the book, Frodo, it was he's terrified of Farmer Maggot because when he was a little boy, he took mushrooms and Farmer Maggot, I guess, I guess he beat him and chased him off with his dogs. And so Frodo's terrified to go near Farmer Maggot's crops because he's like, I'm afraid of the dogs. And he ends up having like a really sweet um, sort of moment with Farmer Maggot when Farmer Maggot's like, gives him a basket of mushrooms to take on his journey. And I just love that. Like, I just think obviously they had to make cuts. Otherwise this movie would be so, so, so long, but there's just, I know that we don't really get to see Farmer Maggot in the movie. And I really like that part of the book a lot. This is arguably in the fellowship. I think the biggest piece cut out, right. Is we we're missing the piece with Tom Bombadil. We're missing Farmer Maggot. We're missing the Grey Haven scenes, which are so scary, so scary in the book. Um, all of those happen sort of in this in between here. Um, oh, with the barrow I, downs, I do think, yes. Oof, so creepy. Yes, the barrow downs. That's right. Did I? I called them the Grey Havens. That's not the same. Right. Yeah, Barrett, and the the whole con- the whole conspiracy, the whole con- the whole conspiracy, the way that we are introduced to the characters of Mary and Pippin and even Sam in the books is through this conspiracy where you find out that they've been plotting to go with their friend into danger for years and years, knowing that they're yeah. heading into terrible danger. They're going to stick by him. You know, that's like a wonderful s- slower introduction to these characters, and here it's the exact opposite. They bump into each other on the road and then they're on the run. Right. And the sense of time is so different because you're watching the film and you think it's been a few days and in the book, it's been years. It's been years. And and I think that's kind of an important part of the book is that Frodo is reluctant to go. You know, he knows he knows from the outset that he's going to go to Mount Doom in the book, in the movie, he does not know. Um, in the book, he does know, and he is he is uh, much like his uncle. He's a reluctant hero, and it takes him a really long time to get up the 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 motivation and the and the will to actually go and leave the Shire. Um, but I just want to read a really quick passage that's that's from the book that I just absolutely love that that speaks to the friendship of the hobbits that I think is really beautiful. But it does not seem that I can trust anyone, says Frodo. Sam looked at him unhappily. It all depends on what you want, put in Mary. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin, to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf told you. We know a good deal about the ring. We are horribly afraid, but we are coming with you or following you like hounds. I love that. And like it says yeah. in the book, Frodo, for all the dread he was feeling for this this burden that he's carrying, it says in the book he feels happy. Like in that moment, he's like, my like he almost feels like relieved. Like, oh, my friends, they know. They know and they're going to stick with me. Like, oh, such Yeah, relief. that's a big difference. It's Yeah, it's a huge difference though in that they – so it sort of seems like Mary and Pippin are just sort of thrown into it, whereas in the movies. but And mm-hmm. they do make a conscious choice, you know, after Rivendell. They make a conscious choice to go. But in the books, it's definitely very deliberate. And I think that's important. It speaks to their character. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, the relationships. Yeah. And yeah, like these chapters, like there's so many that were left out of the film. And I think you were saying, Jen, like it's it's just a slower build um, 
which you know when you're doing a blockbuster Hollywood movie, they had to they had to make decisions. And I think the films are beautiful in their own right. But I will say, like reading the books and rereading them right now, like I'm just so delighted by the details and these little intricate adventures that happen. Um, like even with the old forests, I mean, we can we'll probably get into that too. But um, there's just a lot of detail that they can't fit at all in the movies, unfortunately. Right. In some ways, the book is is very episodic, and the first like half of the Fellowship of the Ring, there is a Tolkien deliberately sort of transitions in tone, right? Because the Hobbit is a little bit more for children, and the Lord of the Rings is much darker subject matter and is written very differently. But the first half of the Fellowship, especially the very very beginning, feels a little bit more like the Hobbit, and then it transitions into you know, a little bit more adult content, kind of slowly, and. Um, uh, in the film, they don't have to worry about that. You know, Tolkien's thinking, well, all my fans have read The Hobbit and they think they're getting The Hobbit, so I'm going to transition them slowly. Um, and in the films, it's just right from the jump when there's the inciting incident. Okay, this is the ring. You've got to go. It's pretty action-packed. There's no room for like the very sl- – because in the book, you know, he knows about the ring. He knows he has to go. And then tons of stuff happens before he ever gets to Rivendell and the Fellowship and the – the mission actually starts, right? I mean, it's it's a very slow process for him to leave the comfort of the Shire and then sort of go through this portal, leave the real world and into the world of fairy. Um, and that involves him uh, going through the old forest and braving old man Willow and braving and meeting Tom Bombadil, all that sort of like his portal into this world of fairy. And then he gets to finally gets to Rivendell and goes on this mission. Here in the movie, it's like he knows about the ring and then boom, he's like he meets the Nazgul and he's constantly running. He's running, running, running. Go to Buckler Ferry, go to Bree. All the Nazgul are coming and we'll get to all that. But it's like much more fast paced and action packed, which I I think was a very understandable and probably necessary choice for a film. Um, I think if we were to ever see this adapted as a series, we would get all that stuff back. We would get Tom Bombadil back. We would get Farmer Maggot back because – you could you can slow down the pace a little bit and take more time and enjoy that process. And so I hope that someday they do a series in a film. I think it's probably the right choice to cut a lot of that stuff. I'm yeah, I'm totally okay with them cutting fog on the Barrow Downs. Personally, I I just think that that chapter's it's it's a little it's it's interesting, but it's a little confusing. And I it would be tough. I think it would be tough to depict. So much of it is really ultimately not very relevant to the plot. Yeah. And like, I mean, I love the scene, speaking of scenes that they cut, like I just thought of like when Sam meets the elves for the first time and Gildor and like they have this beautiful like moment where Sam literally says like this has changed my life. Like I think in the book he says like, yes, sir, I don't know how to say it, but after last night, I feel different. I seem to see ahead in a kind of way. I know we are going to take a very long road into darkness, but I know I can't turn back. It isn't to see elves now, nor dragons, nor mountains that I want. I don't rightly know what I want, but I have something to do before the end, and it lies ahead, not in the Shire. I must see it through, sir, if you understand me. Like, Samwise has oh, this Sam. like he has this like prophetic moment of like I just met these elves my life has changed but I have something I need to do and he doesn't know what it is but I mean think of his journey with Frodo even in the movies like so like that's the kind of stuff like we're not getting that in the films but it's just mm-hmm. so delightful to read and know like as I'm watching the films 
I have that fondness for Sam that he really has that just that just dedication even though he doesn't know what and he says he's like darkness lies ahead but I'm Mm -hmm. gonna I have to stick through it I have to see it through there's a little moment of that in uh, the beginning of the sequence when they're in the in the cornfields and you know Mary and Pippin pop out and which is just like a very this is a very funny sequence you know obviously the scene where Sam says like oh you know don't you lose some Samwise Gamgee? And I don't mean to. And Frodo's like, what could happen? We're still in the Shire. And Mary and Pippin pop out. That's very funny. But then That's Sam <laughs> very roughly, like very roughly pulls, I forget who it is, Pippin or Mary off of Mr. Frodo and then picks Mr. Frodo up and like brushes him off. Like, you okay, Mr. Frodo? It's just, I just think that's so funny and like kind of a lovely way of depicting Sam's absolute devotion to to Frodo, even like against, you know, Pippin and Pippin and Mary are not a danger, but he's like, get off him, you know, and brushing the crumbs off of his jacket. It's just like, protective, <laughs> extremely protective throughout. And the films yeah. do a good job of that. He takes his yeah. role so seriously. And he is, yeah, I think they represent it more in bite sized pieces throughout the film, illustrating his character rather than sort of that singular moment. But it is, I mean, there are a lot of beautiful things written in the books that we don't get to see in the films. Which, mm-hmm. Like yeah. you said, Michael, somebody make more things so we can see it. Also, maybe Amazon reading, someday. <laughs> when reading the books, I don't know about you guys, but they talk a lot about beer. And I just really want a beer every time I read. Like, I feel like Pippin's like, let's go to the Golden Perch. It's the best beer in the East Farthing. And then they right, go to right. Farmer Maggot and they have beer with Farmer Maggot. And then they're having beer at Bilbo's birthday. We like- should have had a beer. <laughs> Why did we choose wine? There's just so much more beer in this one. Next time. Next time. Speaking of the substances, something I wrote down in my notes was Saruman scolding Gandalf in the beginning saying your love of the halfling's leaf has clouded your mind or whatever he says and it's such a fleeting it's such a fleeting moment but you're like what is the halfling's leaf exactly I always took that to mean like the halfling's type but that's funny that you took it as or sorry the halfling's um breed you know what i mean the half, the halflings themselves but it's funny that you took it to mean he said oh it's leaf. definitely the referring that, yeah leaf right? he's talking yeah, about it's... leaf yeah no leaf. leaf you're right but for some reason that never i like i that's not how i heard it for some reason but you're totally right i mean in the movies they <laughs> very funny. strongly imply that it's weed right that it's like that's right. like marijuana weed even though it's like definitely not in the books but it's very strongly implied which i don't mind at all i think that's very funny it's hilarious to Which me. Is fine. Well, there's yeah. a very funny scene later in the only the extended version, I think, in the Two Towers, where Mary and Pippin are high as kites over at yeah. at, at Oh, for yeah. sure. But yeah. But but anyway, that's that's you'll get there. You'll be able to just. We will it. get there. And speaking of getting there, let's get to Buckleberry Fairy. So in this scene, the hobbits are chased through the forest by a screeching black rider and narrowly avoid being captured by leaping onto a ferry. Frodo is the last to make the leap and just barely makes it with Sam yelling his famous, Frodo! The black rider stops on the dock and the hobbits watch in fear as two more black riders appear and ride off into the night. They must travel 20 miles to the next crossing. This scene was actually harrowing for the actors to shoot. So I really did a deep dive into this scene because there was a lot of calamity. First of all, one of the horses 
fell into the water and was like drowning and had to be pulled out and rescued because the horse rides right up to the edge of the dock and they had a real ferry. You know, the horse falls in. They had to like rescue this horse who was like actively drowning. And then Mary got a huge splinter. Apparently the actor Dominic Monaghan got a huge splinter, almost fainted, passed out. And was like, well, in a he lot says of it was pain. huge. Didn't the others make fun of him? I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, I, yeah that remains in the behind the scenes. In the behind the scenes, there's this whole hilarious sequence where they're ribbing him because Dominic Monaghan tells a story like, "Guys, you got to see the splinter. They're about to take it out. It's this. It's a whopper. You know, it's a big splinter, and they they take it out, and it's like this. You know." Totally normal size splinter. <laughs> oh, it was a normal size splinter. Okay, well, yeah, he yeah. definitely played it up like it was like a huge splinter. Um, right. I mean, maybe it was big for a hobbit. It was big for a hobbit. <laughs> um, but Thank also, you. Elijah Wood, that's really him jumping. There was no stunt double, and he definitely fell in the water on at various takes. But It's a um, big jump. It's a yeah. big jump, and, and he did it himself onto a real ferry. Also, the ferry was sinking and they had to like bail it out and fix it during the shoot. And it was shot over the course of a whole night. It like took a whole night. It's the ferry's only job is to not sink. I mean, (laughs) yeah, but I mean, it's a great it's a great scene. And it definitely you feel the tension of them being chased by this wraith and it and their fear, you know, and I I yeah, I think it's a great scene. And gets um gets the plot kind of moving along nicely well since this scene is one of the first where we really get to watch the nazgul and hear their characteristic shriek we're going to pause for a brief sidebar with our music and sound design expert joining us all the way from the music of middle earth podcast jordan rennells the sound they created for the shriek of the black riders is to me one of the sound design highlights in these films which is saying a lot given how excellent the sound design is throughout the shriek is iconic and i think effectively captures that these are beings that embody fear right how did they go about making this sound well the the fun part about the nazgul shriek is that it's it's just uh fran walsh it's just peter's wife um, because he, I, I think the story is that they were searching for a while with these different screams and stuff like that, or different kind of shrieks from different animals and whatnot like that. And, uh, you know, Peter just kind of was like, I'm pretty sure Fran can scream like that. And, uh, they had her into the studio and, uh, let her do her thing. And that was pretty much it. It almost like didn't need processing much um which is just hilarious and, and awesome they they must have uh, added a few layers and done something to it <laughs> because so. that uh, that uh, sound is totally otherworldly yeah they probably added um you know when you listen to it um there's probably layers of reverb that are on it layers of echo there's probably multiple layers of the same uh original sound stacked on top of each other um, and a common thing to do is to like pitch it up and pitch it down. So even if you can't, like if you could hear that sound isolated, I'm sure you could hear kind of sub bass versions of it and then higher mm-hmm. pitch versions of it that are all kind of stacked on top of each other to give it that the weight that it needs. Uh, because we hear the high pitched part, but you know, it's 
it's it's more than just a high pitch. It's just like with the score, you know, there's layers underneath that are hard to hear if you're not listening to it in isolation, right? Right. Um, but they're there to kind of fill up the space of it, right? One of the things that gets me about this shriek, and this isn't the first scene where we hear the shriek. I mean, there, there are some other previous times, but in this uh, sequence of scenes is where it really... Um, we really hear it multiple times in sequence and we're finally really confronted with the Nazgul in a serious way. And this sound is not just high pitched, it's piercing. It's almost uncomfortable, especially if you have like really good speakers. It's like it drills right. into your brain somehow. Right. Um, and, and uh, you know, in the theater, which obviously it's been years and years since I saw this in the theaters, but it, you know, it shocks you when you hear that sound. It almost like makes you jump out of your seat because you're so uncomfortable right. listening to this sound. And that really shows the quality of the mix team that put this together because, you know, to compare to other movies, let's say like Dunkirk, uh, I'm mm. not sure if you've seen Dunkirk, but sure. you know, in, in that movie, there's a lot of gunfire and the gunfire is in, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, but in my opinion, it's too much and it is supposed to make you uncomfortable, but it's, like one step too far where like when I was watching that movie, I was like not really watching the movie. I was just like anticipating when the next gunshot would be because it was so loud and so like brutal. Right. Which is, I guess what he was trying to go for. But when you have something like the Nazgul, it's doing that, but within reason enough to like not, jolt the whole audience out and actually make them uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I think that, I think that there's a super fine line there between the impact and making it uncomfortable for real for the audience. Well, and it's very, very brief in the case of the Nazgul, right? The shriek is um, kind of a split second. It happens and, you know, it jolts you, but then it, it fades away very quickly. Right. right? right. Whereas, um, you know, Christopher Nolan, the, he's kind of known for his sound design choices. And I think some yeah. audio engineers and you can speak more to this, but they, he's criticized for it. Some people like it. Some people don't. He's very passionate about He has his approach where it's right. kind of this overloaded sound design. Um, right. But and, the Nazgul Shriek, it's really the only instance in the movies, the, the right. Lord of the Rings movies where they're using that technique. Right. Yeah. And, and Nolan I've read and, and heard that, you know, when he, is doing the sound design for a movie. He's, he's making it for like the most ideal theater that you could ever go to. Right. Right. He's not really doing it for like the average theater, which is too bad. I would say, because most of us are listening in that environment. Right. Um, so you're like kind of catering it to the one, the top percent of people that will maybe be in this listening environment. Right, which only the top one percent get to enjoy <laughs> yeah. the Christopher Nolan movies. The, yeah, <laughs> at the best theater. So, but uh, that leads into something interesting that I discovered when I was kind of rewatching these scenes and looking at the sound design and stuff like that. Um, because I have a system now that can do five point one or seven point one surround sound. What I can do is I can individually mute different channels. So when you're, let's take this scene when we're watching it, um, any dialogue is in the center channel. So I can mute that mm. so I don't hear it. 
And then the like general sounds, movement and stuff like that are in the left and right speakers. So I can take those off. And then in my side speakers, the one that are directly to your left and directly to your right are almost exclusively for the music and the score and some of those uh, sound design elements. So it's really interesting because I can turn off elements. You know, if you check out the some of the scenes, you can't really hear the score or you can't really hear the sound design because there's dialogue over top of it. Right. Right. And the dialogue should always be the top. But it's really interesting watching these scenes and being able to mute the dialogue and, you know, do a, re- a rewatch with just the score playing, you know, or just right. the sound effects playing. So you really get to hear them a lot clearer for sure. It's really interesting. That's interesting. Well, I guess if any of our listeners have uh, <laughs> that <laughs> capability as well. I'm, I'm hoping that I can find a way of, because I was thinking about it and I think that I can actually find a way to record it, to re-record it so I can have a version of the movies that's just the score or as much of the score as they've, you know, mixed to just those channels. So I could, you know, I was thinking it'd be cool to re-upload like 20 minute samples or something of scenes that we know, but with the dialogue muted. Right. Well, that'd so be that, a fascinating exercise for an, especially for an audiophile like yourself Yeah. where, um, I mean, all those aspects the the score or the sound design, it's underneath the dialogue. So you can't maybe consciously pick it apart and analyze it when you're just watching the films. Normally, of course you're subliminally getting all of it. It's affecting you, but you can't consciously analyze it in the same way. Whereas now if you can strip out the dialogue and now you can just listen to just the sound design piece of it or just the score, that's a pretty cool capability. Yeah, for sure. I'm excited to explore it and I'll probably just do a whole watch through of the whole movies just like that to see, because there's, you know, there's things like when we watch the movies in 4K now, there's stuff that you would have missed earlier, you know, detail mm-hmm. on the armor and detail on the, you know, the swords and stuff like that, that you would have never seen before. So it's that same kind of thing where if you take out the sound design at Helm's Deep, then what's the score doing underneath it? You know, what does that sound like? Because it's it gets buried by stuff. Right. And and obviously this the the mixed team did did a really amazing job of, you know, playing off of each other, you know, there and you can hear that in this scene too, you where the the shriek will come from the Nazgul and then the score comes in right after it. Mm-hmm. And they kind of play with each other that way, and that's really cool. But it is interesting to see it just the score or just the sound design. Well, that's that's really interesting. Thanks, Jordan. And to our listeners, if you enjoyed this sidebar about sound design, you can hear a whole lot more of it at the Music of Middle Earth podcast, where Jordan goes deep into the films. Uh, It's their sound design, as well as Howard Shore's score. And if you're also a fan of Star Wars, check out Jordan's new podcast, Star Wars Sound Design. Now, let's get back to the episode already in progress. So I, I like this sequence, but... This is the consequence of watching it very, very, very closely for a podcast. You start to notice things, then you think you go, hmm, is this really right? So I think it, I, I like it because it's like you get to see the black, like, you know, silhouetted shots of the black riders and they're screeching and it's, there's energy and it's creepy. It's, it, there's a lot of ambiance. There's a lot of good things about it. But like it goes straight from 
the black rider leaning over them on the road and then they somehow escape like they distract it with like a 12 year old trick where they just like throw something <laughs> and and then run the other direction and and it's but fully I think that daytime happens in the book I think that's how they escaped the Black Rider in the book. Too. I think they no, in them. in the book, I mean, there's a lot of differences, but in the book, their first encounter with the Black Rider, they're on the road. They're actually not together on the road. They all like hide in separate places. Frodo's actually all by himself. The other hobbits don't really realize, they don't feel the same fear that Frodo feels because Frodo has the ring. Like they kind of realize, well, that's kind of strange, but they just think like, oh, he's just like one of the, what's one of the big folk doing here? They think it's just like a, a man and it's kind of curious and they don't, feel the same level of dread that Frodo does. And and actually, so in the book, or in the movie, you know, there's the moment where Frodo's almost putting on the ring and then Sam stops him. Yeah. And at the moment yeah. that Sam stops him, the Nazgul kind of sniffs like he notices, right? Like as which I think is great uh cinematography. It, you know, that the the Nazgul is reacting to Frodo resisting the ring or not mm-hmm. putting the ring on. In the book it's the opposite. Frodo is about to put the ring on and he touches the chain but at the moment he touches the chain for some inexplicable reason the black rider walk like rides on and leaves and the sort of the impulse passes for frodo um so it's kind of the opposite instead of the nazgul noticing that frodo is getting closer to the ring he doesn't notice and he just walks on you know maybe it's the hand of a lubitar or whatever fate in favor of frodo um but there's nothing that intervenes that causes him to move on, at least from the from the Hobbit's perspective. He just walks on, and then they they go into the old forest. I thought there was some sort of one Hobbit making another noise somewhere else or something. I guess I I think the elves remembered. the elves save them like the second or third time the Black Rider comes in the book. That's right. Like I think you're the right. The Black Rider yeah. is coming close, and then all mm-hmm. of a sudden they hear the elves singing and the singing scares off the black riders. Mm. Yeah. And that's when they meet Gildor and Sam has his like breakthrough moment. But um, yeah, I, Oh goodness. I'm trying to remember in the books too. When they run away from him, it's fully daytime. And then in the next shot, it's nighttime and they have, that's right. Cl- they ha- all have cloaks on. They all have, they've changed yeah. clothes. It's, it's a costume. I just assume as the audience that they've been traveling and like avoiding this thing on the road. You're supposed to just assume that. I think we're meant to assume. Are are you? Are you? Because (laughs) you don't like it because because Pippin Pippin goes Pippin goes. What is happening? Like like it's as if they just (laughs) ran away. Pippin goes, "What's happening?" And Mary goes, "That black rider was looking for somebody." It feels like it like they just ran away. Yeah, and yet it's nighttime (laughs) and they put on new clothes. It's interesting you say that. Oh, you go. Oh, I was just gonna say that that you said that, Michael, because I mean, as somebody who's done a lot of theater, I did notice when they did the shot of the horse, like there's this like light behind it that you could tell is not the moon. It's definitely like a theater light. But I mean, it's beautiful and it's dramatic, and I don't want to be too critical because I think the films do a great job. But when you mentioned like it's nighttime, I was like, it's nighttime, but also it's like on stage, like for that scene. <laughs> there was a stage. Jesse, that an is the stage. thing. <laughs> Jesse, that that's you the were thing that I was up? going to say. It, Ooh, the yes. light, the lighting in these scenes, and it's actually very common in, in movies. Just you get a random spot to backlight something and you're like, where, where would that light be coming from? That is completely unrealistic. There's, you know, this is Hobbiton circa, <laughs> you know, what year? Help me out. 
YouTube. Fourteen. Scholars. I don't know. Thirteen. Third age. Three thousand. Fourteen ninety two. The third. We're living in the third age in Hobbiton, and there's no spotlights. There's, you know, it. it but it's, it's very, very common silly. at nighttime. but it feels dramatic which is like it's it's a very it's an intense scene so i don't fault them for it but i did notice that too michael like wow i think they thought well how do we do this transition like we show them running through the forest like it's a tricky transition uh it's tricky i mean would you have been satisfied if they'd shot this whole sequence at dusk so not quite as much time has passed Probably, Maybe, perhaps, Maybe, some, yeah. something like that. I would be more satisfied with that. <laughs> more job. satisfied. Okay, so no, we've, we I have do... that critique. We'll let him know. I, I, would, I, would, the... I would prefer if someone had taken out a sundial at the beginning of the scene and then again at the end of the scene. Uh, this is too much. No, the, the jogging conversation is funny, though. I, I think you started to touch on that, Michael, that they're sort of trotting along through the woods having a, what is happening? Here's the update, Mary and Pippin. Um, I love that Mary and Pippin are like, what is going on? Like, they don't know they're just going with them. They're just being chased. (laughs) Yeah. And this is something Um, I realized for the first time, too. They, Frodo never tells them about the ring. Until they get to Rivendell, they don't know about the ring or why they're running. They're just like, oh, sure, we'll go with you for, we don't know what reason. Don't they seem like those kind of guys, though? They're just like, yeah, we're here. We're on a quest. we're the impression we're we are running. meant to get. <laughs> and they're helping out a friend. That's the thing. They it is clear that they're helping out a friend. They're he's like, I need yes. to get debris mm. now. And Mary's like, yeah. you know what? All right, dog. Buckleberry fairy. I'm taking it. <laughs> Ride or die. And I, that's what I like about them. Um And Aubrey, you were talking about how we lose the conspiracy in in the films, mm-hmm. right? And in a way. The way they present it in the movies, even though they do it in the opposite way, it accomplishes the same thing, right? We don't see the conspiracy and the, the long percolating plot to help their best friend Frodo and, you know, knowingly go into danger. Here, they don't ask questions. They don't think twice. They jump right into danger with Frodo. They don't know what's going on, but Frodo's their friend and they're going to go with them. And even though it's a different circumstances, it's a totally different uh, narrative, you get the same feeling. These are his friends. They stick with him no matter what. They're not even asking questions. There's a crazy black writer that's like makes them feel like death and they're going anyway. Um, even though it's very different and some people might complain just because it's different, I think it accomplishes the same thing, which is it tells you that they are best buds and that they're going to stick with Frodo till the end. Absolutely. And, and I think more than maybe any other character, the way that Mary and Pippin are written, they are so easy to fall in love with. You just mm. immediate the first scene you see them in, you're like, I love them. I love these silly guys, you know, and, and they're they are loyal and they are comical and they but that's what I mean true friendship is very funny. <laughs> true friendship is um uh, something where you're comfortable and, and you're safe and and that room for lightness in heart is there even in the depths of terror or sadness or whatever that thing is Hmm. and I think they lend that to the story so much yeah absolutely and they undergo like the one of the more radical transformations throughout the story absolutely all right so moving on 
at the sign of the prancing pony. So our dreary and drenched hobbits arrive at the inn and they are not welcomed with open arms. The The inquisitive gatekeeper asks what business the hobbits have in Bree, only to be given a curt reply by Mr. Baggins. We wish to stay at the inn, our business is our own. The gatekeeper tells them he must ask questions after nightfall as there is talk of strange folk abroad. Talk of strange folk abroad. The hobbits enter the prancing pony and are greeted by Barlow and Butterbur, who offers them hobbit-sized rooms, but tells them he hasn't seen Gandalf for six months. Gandalf? Gandalf? Oh, yes, I remember. Elderly chap. Big grey beard, pointy hat. Not seen him for six months. The hobbits grab some pints in the bar. What's that? This, my friend, is a pint. It comes in pints. With some less than savory looking characters. Uh, One of them is Peter Jackson uh, in his first little cameo there. (laughs) Sam points out a particularly nefarious looking bloke who's been staring at them and is informed by Butterbur that his name is Strider. He's one of them rangers. Man in the corner. Who is he? He's one of them rangers. Dangerous folk they are wandering the wilds. What his right name is, I've never heard, but round here, he's known as Strider. Pippin gets a little tipsy and starts to spout off about Frodo Baggins, blowing his cover of being Mr. Underhill, which is the name he gives the innkeeper. Frodo Baggins. He's my sister. Once removed on his mother's side. Frodo goes to shush him, trips, which sends the ring flying up into the air, and he catches it on his finger, disappearing instantly and causing a great scene in the pub. The Nazgul are immediately alerted, as is Sauron, and Frodo sees the eye for the first time. I see. So let's unpack this scene. This is a great scene. There's so much going on here. So let's, I want to get us started with a little bit of uh, behind the scenes stuff. We get a ton of forced perspective going on in this scene because we have, the hobbits are around men, so... They have to do tons of force perspective to make it work. And there are a bunch of men walking around in what are called big rig suits. So like when they're standing at the counter with Butterbur, you can see like there's a man. You don't see his face or anything, but you see a man's torso walking by and you see his hands. That's not actually a man. That's a man in a suit and a hand is a fake hand. It's an animatronic hand that they like designed to move a little bit. And it's flawless. You don't notice it at all. It looks totally realistic. But throughout all these scenes in in Brie and inside the Prancing Pony, you'll see lots of shots of men's torsos like walking behind the hobbits. And they're all men in big rig suits, which is just amazing. There's also someone on stilts. Oh, yeah, totally. There's a woman, a little a gymnast, a, a gymnast who's a New Zealander, who's like five feet tall on stilts, dressed as a man. But yeah, I love this scene, but it is a radical departure from the books. And I understand why. I think the scene is great in that it establishes these little hobbits that are scared. They're huddled together. They're outside of the Shire, way outside their comfort zone. And they're they're alarmed. They don't know what they're in for. And I think it's really great. Um, in that way, and the introduction to to Strider is fantastic. It's such a good uh, introduction to the movie, and Viggo Mortensen is phenomenal. This was apparently like he came to the production so much later than everyone else, and this was one of the first scenes he filmed. I don't think it was the first scene, 
but um, our first look at him as this ominous character is perfect because we really don't know and we're not supposed to know whether or not he's a good guy or a bad guy. We don't really know. And he's a great actor, does a great job. I just, I wish they'd gotten someone better looking for this character, you know? <laughs> uh, oh <laughs> someone with a, you know, a stronger jaw or something. There are some people who claim he's wearing camo in this scene, like camo pants. You get a flash really? of like when, when his pipe lights up, is he wearing camo pants? Oh, some people yeah. swear that he's wearing camo pants. That's I myself really can't really tell. It's possible that he shot this away from, yeah, he shot this. He wasn't with the other hobbits when he shot this. So um, this was shot totally separate, but I love that he looks so nefarious over there with his pipe, you know, his striker. That's amazing. I didn't, I don't think that I knew that. That's very cool trivia, Jennifer, that he wasn't there. No, he Um, wasn't there because he was late. You know, he was cast. He was a replacement actor for somebody else. Robert Townsend. I didn't know that either. Oh, wow. Wait, is that right? Robert Townsend. I think I vaguely remember that from my childhood. He Um, flew out and had to, like, jump into action because the scene. They did. Yeah. Go ahead. (laughs) My notes say, hello, Aragorn, with an exclamation (laughs) point. Sort of like the Animaniacs. Hello, nurse. Um, (laughs) but I think (laughs) something funny that happens, well, like you said, we don't know if we can trust, it's another scene where we don't know if we can trust who we're being introduced to. Um, and they do try to obviously create some resemblance between his costuming and the costuming of the Black Riders, where you're suspicious and you're like, is Mm -hmm. he, are the Black Riders in the pub? Um, and... Mm. obviously he you know he looks a little hotter than they do but other than that we don't know if he's trustworthy um but i love he he pulls frodo aside right is it all right for me to get into this he pulls frodo aside post the incident the ring incident mm-hmm. um and then our our friend hobbits come to defend frodo and they're defending him with various household items (laughs) and it's like so cute it's so cute and it's so amazing and it's one of the moments that i think you don't when we watch the movies obviously we we view them via the lens of being a human and so we think of hobbits being small but when you think about the idea of being hobbit sized and traveling to a foreign land where everyone is bigger than you uh that's so scary and it would be like going land, so i don't know <laughs> Jen, jen's living in I, hobbit land as I, it is i resonate um but just the idea that it would be like all right i'm i'm going on a, an incredible journey and everyone else is a giant and i'm going to defend myself with some household items against some of these so what do they have people. like a candlestick and a, a stool yeah. 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 No, it's great. The the bravery of hobbits. Like comparing again to the book, I mean, I know you mentioned it's very different, but when you know, when I read it, I don't know why I feel like the prancing pony's kinda cozy to me. And then in the movie, like there's these quite sketchy, really creepy, eerie looking characters, really rough, ruffians. Totally. Um, yeah. And yeah. And I, I guess I just interpret it different in the book. And even like reading in the book, 
there's a lot of hobbits that live in Bree, like reading about right. big big folk and little folk. Um, they were on friendly terms, minding their own affairs in their own ways, but regarding themselves as necessary parts of the Bree folk. Nowhere else in the world was this peculiar but excellent arrangement to be found. Mm-hmm. That's from chapter nine in the book. And so I, I would have maybe loved to have seen a few hobbits in the Prancing Pony Bar, but I also know. I you think wish it that, was more cozy and more like the book? Well, maybe. I think I think they do a good job. It's like a scene out of Pirates of the Caribbean. Exactly. Very rough. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Like kind the of, ride. Well, we don't get we don't get Frodo Frodo, yeah. so we should talk about the big departure, because this is a yeah. big departure. The way that the ring ends up on Frodo's finger is really right. different in the book. Mm. Definitely. So in the book he's singing as he actually gets on a table and is and is singing a song, which actually I I kind of wish they would have done this. Maybe it couldn't have been achieved, but if I'm not mis- correct me if I'm not mistaken, but he gets up on a table in the book. Frodo's singing a, a bar song, and he had done this to distract from Pippin spouting off about him, right? But yeah. he kind of he kind of slips and it falls on his finger also in the book. But I think it's while he's singing the song. Something but it's like, like his that. hand yeah. is in his pocket. It's like his hand is in it his doesn't pocket. like j- f- fly into the air and then, you know, dramatically catch on his finger. Land it's on just his like finger. it's just in <laughs> his pocket. But in the book, also, the song that he's singing right. is supposed to be like the precursor to the man of the moon. Did you notice that? Yes. Oh, which I love. Tolkien does all these great does that a few times. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think too many songs were cut out obviously we'll, we have a song I love his in our songs. extended version that we and Tolkien his books sorry it just reminds me of just those songs <laughs> they're so good as I'm Tolkien, rereading them his books <laughs> <laughs> pretty good pretty good <laughs> so all right let me let me ask you guys this when when Frodo puts on the ring He's he goes into the uh, I don't know nether world or whatever yeah the shadow world and Sauron you know we see the eye of Sauron which we've already talked about that the visual is great and Sauron is actually talking it seems like to him um, and it seems like Sauron can see him I mean and and Sauron actually says uh, you cannot hide and I see you I yeah see you. I, I see I, you. <laughs> It's, you cannot hide. I see you. There is no life in the void, only death. That's what Sauron says. What do you guys think that means? Uh, Well, I always thought that that scene actually was one of the cheesiest scenes. Because he says, I see you, and he's an I. (laughs) I was like, come on, man. This is a stupid pun. Um, (laughs) Sauron with his dumb wordplay. I was like, that was stupid. Um... (laughs) But the rest of it, I mean, very spooky wording, but I don't know where it comes from. I mean, is there... I think it's pretty heavy-handed. No, it's not in the book at all. But it's so distorted that you... It's not in the book, no. I think it's very heavy-handed, but it's not noticeable because it's so distorted. You know? Yeah. I thought the pun was (laughs) heavy-handed. Yes. (laughs) I I never thought of it as being a pun, but now I can't... I won't be able to watch it any other way. (laughs) You single-handedly so ruined funny. that scene for me. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But in the, uh. in the book, um, I mean, Sauron never, Sauron doesn't know that Frodo, Frodo has the ring, right? I mean, 
Sauron never sees Frodo, never gets his eye on Frodo. There's a moment, I think, at the breaking of the Fellowship, at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, where he's on the Tower of Amonsung or Amonsul or whatever it is, when Sauron almost gets his eye on him. But um, even then he doesn't because Gandalf is off in the distance sort of striving with the will of Sauron. And that's way in the future. At this point, you know, when Frodo puts the ring on, there's no indication that he senses Sauron's presence or anything like that, I don't think. So, you know, from a narrative perspective, it's kind of a plot hole because I feel like if Sauron knows with 100% certainty, if he says, I see you, I know that you have the ring, Frodo, and you are in Bree. I feel like the plot would be different, right? I mean, he would, all he wants in the world is to get the ring. And if he knows with like GPS level accuracy where it is, he's going to like send his forces there. The Nazgul are going to GPS attack. GPS level ac- accuracy though, for sure. <laughs> not he's in the book, but in the movie, science. that's how it feels. <laughs> <laughs> because later when he sees Pippin through the Palantir, he doesn't know which hobbit that is. They establish that. No. They're like, he doesn't know which hobbit that is. It could have been any old hobbit. Right. You know? Well, and my interpretation of this is more of along the lines of like, uh, and this is throughout the series, something that comes up is that people who have the rings have awareness of each other. And maybe that isn't, you know, GPS awareness, but they're aware <laughs> of each other's presence. <laughs> Um, and, and I mean, obviously the black riders do come to Bree, so they have some general idea of where he's at, uh, both in the book and in the movie. So what, what do you think he means when he says there is no life in the void, only death? I think it's pretty self-explanatory, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, uh... (laughs) just kidding. (laughs) Okay. I'm asking a question that I have an answer to. Is it the netherworld <laughs> that you're... You think it's... In, then maybe it's like the netherworld that we're entering into when we have the ring on. Well, and life. if... Which maybe, but that's not true, right? Because uh, you can put the ring on and you're still alive. Bilbo puts the ring on, put the ring on all the time. He never saw the eye of Sauron and he's not dead and Frodo's not dead when he puts it on. Um Maybe Sauron's trying to threaten him, mm-hmm. right? If you know, if you put the ring on, you will become a rave, and so your future is only death. So bring it to me. Maybe there's some implication there. But a theory that I have is so he he refers to the void, which the void is actually like outside the borders of the world. That's where Eru Iluvatar is, right? That's where all the Valar are outside the the confines of the world. That's called the void, and um, a lie that Sauron used to tell the Numenorians was that, you know, the gift of man, your death, um, that's not actually a gift. That's, that's the, the doom of man because there's no life after death. There's nothing in the nothing void after you wow. die other than death. And so it's kind of echoing the lie that Sauron would tell the Numenorians. Genius. That's that's kind of my little working theory of what that's supposed to mean. Wow. So much better. My my idea was like it's spooky horror movie jargon. That that's exactly what I thought in there. <laughs> that's exactly what but I thought, I like- Aubrey, but I think you're t- I, I think you're on to something because they were so thoughtful in the way that they wrote yes. the script. And more more thorough than that. More thorough than that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe maybe this is my like ignorance but can you explain michael or jen or aubrey why 
Bilbo doesn't see that underworld when he puts the ring on. Maybe you've already explained this before. Like even at the birthday party, he just sort of disappears and it's fun. Like it's a fun party trick. He he doesn't see the eye of Sauron or the underworld because neither does Frodo. I mean, it's just, it's kind of, that's something that Peter Jackson kind of made up. Okay. Well, I think that's what I was trying to figure out in my, in the movie Yeah, Peter Jackson. Like like why they did that. Yeah. I think right. again, like something that Peter Jackson talks about a lot in his director's commentary is establishing the ring and Sauron as a serious threat and a villain and reminding of the audience of that continually throughout. And so I think that's the reason he did this. Cause mm-hmm. yeah, that's not in the books. Not in the books. Okay. Yeah. I just, I like it though. I, I'm sorry. I just was going to say like for, a, for the movie, for somebody, I mean, we have read the books, but for somebody who hasn't, that does make it seem more like of a peril, like we got to get this ring, we got to destroy it right. because of the connection to Sauron and how he, I mean, even Gandalf says in the movie, like the ring is trying to find back its home back to its master. It wants to be found. It wants right. to be found. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing that I was going to say also is just that really one of my main critiques, even as a child of the movies was that so much of Frodo's journey is uh, so, so psychological and so much of the struggle he endures is in his head and in his spirit and you mm-hmm. cannot illustrate that in a movie without stepping into the realm of metaphor where you show the eyeball where you show the shadow realm where you show these things because mm-hmm. how else can you represent somebody's thoughts and feelings without them saying it right if we're not dealing with a physical enemy which we're not for Frodo so much of it is his internal struggle, um, then you have to show that in some way. I love that, right. Aubrey. And I think they do a great job, like even in the later films, like just, you're right, that's really hard to show. I mean, the you know, we can get into like the spiritual symbolism and how the ring represents sin or like how the sin weighs heavy, um, which is something I read um that Tolkien used the ring to represent like the heaviness and weight of sin. But like, that's so hard to show visually, like, cause it's internal, it's the soul and they do a really good job. Like Frodo, especially in the third film, like he looks just, just, just destroyed and distraught. And like, you could just tell that burden he's carrying is so heavy. And I love when Samwise, I just love Sam when he's like, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. Like, I I forget the word verbatim, but it's just, it's amazing. It's like when we have friends who have carrying these like heavyweights, like mental illness, or like we can't take that from them, but we can support them. And I think that the films mm-hmm. do a really good job of like bringing that camaraderie to support Frodo carrying that burden of the ring. So yeah, good job, Peter Jackson. I think showing it is a challenge, but they do well. I think we are at pretty close to wrapping it up, but I, I do have a question before we do that, kind of a broad question. And we've touched on this throughout that there are a lot of changes. I mean, tons of changes. We haven't even talked about Tom Bombadil, right? We haven't, you know, but we've touched on, they cut the conspiracy, they cut all, all this stuff. And I just kind of wanted to ask y'all, how did you feel reading the books compared to how you felt watching the movie? Like, how do these changes change how you feel? Because in the in the book, through this whole sequence, and Aubrey, you mentioned this, what we see with Gandalf at Orthanc, we don't see this chronologically in the book. That's, that's told um, retrospectively by 
Gandalf at the Council of Elrond. So we don't know that it's happening when we read the book. We're actually experiencing everything through the eyes of Frodo. And Frodo doesn't know where Gandalf is. And he's he's bewildered. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know what to do without Gandalf. And he's going along. And he doesn't know what the Black Riders are. Are they just big people? Uh, are they just men? Or are they actually something ominous from Sauron? And we as the readers don't know because Frodo doesn't know. Whereas in the movie, we know the Black Riders are from Sauron. So there's a very difference in storytelling style. Um, Tolkien puts us in the seat and shoes of Frodo, and we're as confused as Frodo is. We don't know what's going on, and there's a lot of ominous stuff happening, and we know, and we, and we have a lot of feelings experiencing it that way. And in the movie, we know exactly what's happening. Um, we know who the Black Riders are. We know that Gandalf has been imprisoned by Saruman. Um, and it makes for, to me, I think, a very different experience. Um, what do you guys think about that? For me, I think that's. Oh, go, go ahead, Jesse. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, um, I think that, I mean, they're just totally different experiences, like you said, Michael. But when I read these books, I mean, you hit the nail on the head when you said it was more like little episodes. Like, I feel like these little adventures that I get to read, I mean, it's just so delightful. And I, the perspective from The Hobbits, and I mean, even. I know we didn't talk about Tom Bombadil or Goldberry. Like I could talk about Goldberry mm, all day, yeah. but like these songs and Tolkien's writing style, I find myself rereading certain paragraphs or certain poetry or songs because it's so eloquent. I feel like I want to do it slowly. I want to just like immerse myself in the books. And I, it's totally different than when you watch a film, which is more action packed and exciting. And it's beautiful. I mean, these films are stunning and I'm also immersed in it, but it's in such a different way. Like they're just so different. I'm finding a hard time explaining, but I, I think the films feel kind of just like ex- excitement and the books to me feel just like I just want to take a slow pace and, and, and I love it. Like it's Tolkien's writing. It's a good book. <laughs> just kidding. Tolkien really good books. books. It's really good book. It's really good books. <laughs> I feel the same way, Jesse. I think for me, it's a sense of when I read the books, I feel such a sense of warmth. And when I watch the movies, um, I feel the tension. And that's effective in filmmaking. You have to drive the plot forward and you have to keep the tension on. And I know that was, and I think that was really well done. But I do think it sacrifices a lot of the warmth and depth um, that's present in the books for me. Yeah, like the books make me weep sometimes because they're so beautiful. Whereas the movies, I just they're just enjoyable. Like I'm just two different experiences yeah i think there's just so much drama obviously there's so much drama in the films and i think the the books are as you said they're slower they're more i think emotionally saturated um and also sometimes let's let's, i will be very honest sometimes they can be slow sometimes you're reading about the bushes on the side of the hill next to the (laughs) thing and you're like this is a long time of talking about bushes. It's no, I mean, it's no dune in terms of describing unnecessary things, but it does take so Yay, much longer. Yeah, women read dune too. 
I just finished Dune recently. Thank you very much. There is a 30 page dinner scene in Dune. But, but, but I, I digress. A long time ago. Yes. Did you? You good? I've read it. Jen, we have to talk about that. High school. Side, side podcast episode on Dune. Okay. Um, Deal. <laughs> Dunecast. 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 Going down. We'll adapt it for the screen. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, not to make it about Dune. The point is that it, it's they are the books can be slow sometimes. I'll, I'll be I love them. They're some of my favorite books, but sometimes it takes a long time to move through these different portions. Right. I think the movie, like Peter Jackson, does a good job bringing things more to the surface, like uh, the emotional content more to the surface, the connections, he makes them explicit, whereas Tolkien maybe hides them and you only discover them on multiple readings. Um, So in some ways, Peter Jackson makes it easier, right? Which I guess you have to do when you're making a movie. But I I think a lot of it is the heart is still there, but he makes it a little easier on you. Um, Some of the scenes are a little more saccharine. I think it's effective. I think he, he toes the line well. I like the balance that he strikes, but you know, you know, I, I want to cry at the, the gray Haven scene, you know, I mean, there are, there are yeah. tearjerker moments in the films True. as well. Oh yeah. Definitely. Um, oh yeah. Lots of, lots of them. I mean, it is a beautiful adaptation. Yeah. The, I was actually like pausing as I was um, rewatching these films, like the scenery, like I, sometimes I just pause. I'm like, let's just have this be my backdrop because it's of my phone or my computer because it's just stunning. Like I want to go to New Zealand so bad. Yeah, the, the shots of the landscape are very, very stunning. Oh, yeah. And it's it's immersive and it's exciting. You know, I think the, I think the movies are exciting. They make you want to be in the adventure. And they do a good job. I think one of the reasons I love Tolkien so much is because of the words. Like, I love his words. And I think that Peter Jackson, like, I think the movies do a good job of bringing in some of those words verbatim and the dialogue. And and when we get that, it it does. It feels like you mentioned, Thank you, Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyan for for writing that script because it is a beautiful beautiful script. It's beautiful, and it like it does give that warm feeling as well at times. If if you ever listen to, I don't know if any of you have listened to a a, a book on tape or like an audio book of the Lord of the Rings, but I I did um, like a year ago and for the first time, and it actually amazed me how much like hearing it. Obviously, I've read the books a number of times, but actually hearing the books, it was the first time I realized how much of the actual text they used in the script. You know, they really did pull a lot of the the original text and his prose, and um, you know, I applaud them for doing that, and not thinking they I could do it. better. Yeah, they did a remarkable job of that. Even times when they had to tweak lines, they were able to, I think, preserve the essence of what was being said by the characters. It's mm-hmm. so good. Or they'd put different people saying different things, different characters saying something that another person had actually said, but in a great mm-hmm. place. They just wanted to fit it in somewhere. It's all great. Like putting putting um, Bombadil's lines into um, Treebeard's exactly scenes, right? Exactly because they cut our our Tom. R.I.P. Yes. Tom Bombadil. <laughs> oh my gosh, Taylor's <laughs> Taylor. I was laughing. That was amazing. <laughs> Is he Just sleeping so- through this? He's, I hope he, he's 
dreaming of like Ents right now or something Lord of the Rings. Like as you're talking, he's just. (laughs) He actually has been texting me commentary. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So for the, for the folks at home, um, (laughs) my, my boyfriend's in the room just listening to me. Gab. Passed out. (laughs) Um, Ladies, thank you so much for your time and insights. And it was such a joy to do this podcast with you. And we are truly, truly hope to have you back at some point. And thank you so much for coming along for the ride. I love you both. Thank you. It was an honor. I had so much fun. Truly, truly a dream come true. Big fan of both of yours. Big fan of the podcast. I love listening to you guys when I take Rosie on a walk. Like You guys keep doing what you're doing. I'm learning a lot too. Like you guys, I know you're doing a lot of research and I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm so happy to hear we're shaping young minds, you know, bringing in new uh, <laughs> Tolkien the lovers future. into the fold. All right. Well, farewell, my friends. And may the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. Until next time. Nobody's commented on my fake eyelashes for my play. Jenny, I noticed that your eyes look really beautiful, but I just thought you had big eyeliner on. No, fake eyelashes. It looks beautiful. Thank you. Now we wow. can move on. <laughs> okay. So. You look beautiful. No, <laughs> I'm going to work it in to the podcast. Thanks. Okay. So for the Grey Havens, let's talk about. Jen's big eyelashes. Jen's fake eyelashes. All right. <laughs> so for the Gravens, Michael has no idea what we're doing, so he might not approve. He might cut it from the whole episode. However, we're going to play a little fun, <laughs> a fun, innocent little round of Mary Shagger Kill Lord of the Rings edition. <laughs> amazing. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Amazing. Amazing. All right. Are there limitations? No limitations. No limitations. There's no limitations. And Aubrey has to go first. I feel like this is a game that I, think... I can't play. Yes, you can. You absolutely can. Oh, shush. No, 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 no. You can absolutely you play You can it. play. Everybody I'll go can first. Play. And I don't think you need to stick to a specific gender of person. Absolutely not. I'll... Okay. Right. I think there were more women. it's important to be wide, be wide in your interpretation. Inclusive. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Aubrey, do you want to go first or shall I? Um, I... This is a, such a quick thing. I feel like I don't want you to go first because I don't want to be influenced by what you say. <laughs> um, okay, I would marry Mary. I would marry Mary. Oh, good choice, good choice, good choice. <laughs> um, entertain. Okay. You'd be entertained I, for the rest of your I life. I think he would be extremely loyal. He's very strong and um, he is willing to uh, <laughs> make sacrifices for people that he loves. Important. I think he would be a devoted partner. He's got a, an amazing, um, no, never mind. He doesn't sing. That's Pippin that sings, isn't it? It is Pippin. Um, anyway, I was going to go with a more main character, one of our hero dudes, but I think, but I think we have such people qualities coming from mary and he's funny and funny we need funny fun to be married to somebody that's not fun for you to have fun with exactly and shag will have to say um 
we have to say Legolas. I mean, really? Okay. You can't. All right. You have to. Although I will admit that as so as a child, I was more of a Frodo Legolas girl. And now that I'm an adult in my 30s, I see the appeal of Aragorn. I said the exact same thing one podcast ago. Things have changed. Things have changed. Um, we want a man, kill. not a boy elf. Do I have to? I mean, <laughs> not a boy elf. Not a so, small hobbit. Who, who do you um, think you'll prefer when you turn 60? I'm going to be all Gimli. in on... <laughs> I was going to say Gandalf, but whatever. Gimli. <laughs> Gimli. Furry and funny. Um, sure, why not? At that age. Um, Kill, I'm going to have to pick. All right. This is going to be really specific. There is an orc in Return of the King that is a character that I think is just written in as a piece of interest, but he's like pink colored. He's like I the know. sponge and face. He he's a, got like a sponge for a face. Sort of a misshapen face. A snout. Yeah. 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 That's actually yeah, he's like really. Yeah. Voiced by Andy. Serpens. He's like a loofah. His whole head is a loofah. Yeah. He loofah. looks like a. He looks like an orc loofah, and he's the only pink orc you get the whole time. He's really gross looking. Good call. And mm-hmm. I always felt like he was over the top, and I could do without him. All right. And that's, there you go. <laughs> there you go. All right. I think those are totally valid answers. Michael, you want to go next? I, I, I could use some more time, considering I don't have a whole lot of options in this okay. uh, legendary, so I have to expand my my... <laughs> view of the world and <laughs> all right all right i will go <laughs> i would marry frodo because he's brave and loyal and those eyes mm-hmm. beautiful and beautiful <laughs> and interesting to talk to <laughs> uh, definitely heroic you know loyal that's um, loyalty is important mm-hmm. to me that's an important quality. Yeah. Shag Aragorn, duh, and kill Legolas because duh. he needs to be taken down a peg, I think. <laughs> a little too big for his britches most of the time. Oh, so funny. <laughs> true. It's probably it's true. She's not wrong. And I see now, Jen, you really have turned a corner. You turned the corner on the age difference hard. I have. You committed fully. I'm not the woman. You committed fully to the transition. (laughs) You're not the girl you once were. I'm not the girl. You are the woman you are now. I'm the woman I am now. Well put, (laughs) Michael. (laughs) The pressure is on. We were stalled Uh, for you a little, but I mean, he's just short on female characters. But you can get creative. Get creative. Be like, you know what? what? Shelob would be a nice romp in the hay. Sure, if I was another spider. Hey, six arms, you know. I mean, so many hands. You get really All right, no, oh no. <laughs> okay, Matt Shilo. I know. I am not limiting. Uh, this is a gender-free. Um, yeah, uh, Evaluation here. I, I think Mary. Um, you know, I'm going to go with Barlam and Butterbur. All right, I'm going to yes, marry Barlam and Butterbur. Go. He's got his. He's an entrepreneur. He owns his own business. All right. It's stable. He's at the center of commerce in a, an important byway. Okay. Um, unlimited beer. 
unlimited beer for me. Okay, it's for life. Um, but very always a place to stay. Really? Yeah, forgetful. doesn't get that, that works in my favor like... because th- that's a, to my benefit as his spouse because he'll forget all the things that I screw up. Okay, but he's gonna He'll forget all your anniversaries. You. He's never gonna give you any letters from that's, Gandalf. But free beer, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like point. a trade-off. That's a good point. Every every good mar- every good marriage is give and take. You know, every, it's Absolutely. give and take. Yeah, um, okay. Mm-hmm. Mary Shag um, Shag, I'm going with, and I think this is gonna seem out there, but I think uh, when you really you, you know, let this marinate. It's going to make sense. I'm going to go with Gollum. Okay, a uh, <laughs> lot of energy. Okay, a lot of right. energy, endurance. He's been around for 500 years. Okay, wiry strength. I appreciate that. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and so slippery. Uh, oh my god! I don't think we can air this. Yep, yep. I don't think we can. <laughs> We're gonna have to put a warning We're at the top get in of trouble. this episode. <laughs> okay, interesting. Um, Nobody has said anything explicit. <laughs> oh my uh, gosh! Kill, I guess I'll just say Boromir. Why? You don't like Boromir? <gasps> wow. Oh, Brutal. no. Brutal. You just lost Aubrey and I. We like Boromir. Oh, we love us are you Boromir? Boromir? Who, I mean. Team Boromir, right. folks. If we really want to get deep, we can talk about I Boromir. I mean, like, but... he's a troubled soul. Yeah. He's deeply human. He, he's a troubled soul. He is what... He is the more human version of Aragorn. We get sort of this exalted hero with Aragorn, who he he's human, but he still is sort of can do no wrong. And in Boromir, we see what Aragorn would be if he was truly human. Truly Actually, he is the most human body. character in the entire yes. novel, definitely right, without a doubt. Yeah, you know, he's and he just wants to do good things so badly. Yeah. And he dies heroically. He's, I think, like the most interesting character we've got in in the novel, in a way. Yeah. And you I should I changed my answer to Shag Boromir. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, you know what? Now that we're talking my answer. <laughs> I'm gonna shag Faramir. Oh Faramir. Oh, I forgot fa- about oh, the brother. Faramir is a good choice. Is, yes. Faramir. Good call. Sensitive. Actually, a sensitive I soul. did have a big crush on him. Me too. Mm-hmm. It's tragic. Also One of the, I can't figure. believe they cut that romance out of. It's in the extended the version, but briefly. The, I know. Yeah, even then we only get a scene. Barely. It's tragic. Big loss. Big loss for, for preteen Aubrey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say. And preteen Jen as well. Well, thank you. That was riveting and surprising. In more ways than one. <laughs> Thanks for indulging me. I applaud you, I'm Michael. That was beautiful. Beautiful and Thank imaginative. Um, and that concludes Mary Shagger Kill, <laughs> Lord of the Rings edition. Probably have to do it again with another guest. <laughs> Thank you, Aubrey, for being up for it. <laughs> Maybe you could just bleep some of my words out. <laughs>
It was risky. It was a risky bet. I debated whether or not to bring it up, but I felt like I had to. Once the notion entered my head.